Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today, I have on a very special guest who I'm very excited to have on. I have on John Potash, who is the author of The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Drugs as Weapons Against Us. He's also a documentary filmmaker. He completed his graduate studies at Columbia University, and he has been counseling people with mental health problems and addiction problems for 25 years, or well, probably more than that now, because I'm getting that from the back of the book. But anyways, how are you doing, John? I'm good, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I've just gotten done rereading Drugs as Weapons Against Us, which I have to say is a very interesting book. I was very excited to get to reread and to have you on the show. And I think it might just be the best. I think if if I were to start talking to somebody about drugs being used by intelligence agencies, because so many of the other books that deal with them are um, so dense and scholarly, and they might only tackle, you know, one angle of it in Afghanistan. But this is just such a great overview and it's um, very good reading. So I really appreciate it. And it's very interesting. But I guess I'll just start off with what made you decide to want to write this book in particular? Well, a few reasons. One was that I, uh, you know, I dabbled in drugs myself. I just was an abuser, drug abuser throughout high school, and then started to wean off in college. And I just found that certain drugs seemed to mess my head up uh, too much for too long. And, uh, they, they being probably psychedelics and you know, likely, uh, MDMA or ecstasy, you know, maybe they call it Molly these days, but, um, that was part of it. Um, I, and I was a psychology major and went and started doing addictions counseling out of college and started hearing all these different stories from the people I was counseling on all different kinds of drugs and started researching the political aspects of it all and just found that the government appeared to be the biggest drug dealers in the world and drug traffickers. And they also had a, um, a project MK ultra that the CIA started in 1953, which really got dozens of different drugs out on the streets and including their, their top drugs, which were LSD and other psychedelics along with, you know, MDMA or ecstasy. And uh, so, and they were using them as weapons against um, activists who were opposing the Vietnam War, along with activists who were fighting for, you know, civil rights and uh, black liberation. Yes, absolutely, and you do a great job of laying that out in your book. And so, I have a pretty well informed audience who's very into all this stuff about MK Ultra, or who know that the intelligence agencies are bringing in the drugs, but. I just want to ask you, going back in history, when do you think drugs first began to be used as a method of you know, control against populations and against activists and dissidents? Does it, has it always been going on? Um, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's been going on for at least uh, centuries because, you know, as I document in my book, and I'm glad you read it twice, it's great, I appreciate it. Um, that they, you know, they used. I argue the first opium, war, the first wars for drugs were, you know, what they call the opium wars against China. So they had been using it to pacify the vast country of China. When I say they, I, I mean the British 
colonial powers and then the American you know, uh, oligarchs joined the British powers, colonialist powers, I should say. And so they were forcing China to accept loads of opium. And when China, the China, Chinese emperor tried to keep opium out, they, they you know, had a war to force them to accept it and basically took over China until you know China uh, Mao Zedong's revolution in 1950 and so that you know so obviously they were using opium in that way at least you know from the opium wars of the 1700s and 1800s to the, to 1950 and so yeah it's it's this has been used uh for a long time and you can argue of course with the way they used alcohol in in Ireland and, um, you know, in the way they use it in India with um, the poppy fields and different other places around the world. And, of course, our longest wars in history, in U.S. history, were in the two best places for opium crops, uh, for poppy fields, which were, you know, Afghanistan and Vietnam. So, Yeah, and it's interesting how when you look at the time of U.S. invasion of those places, the cultivation of opium just happens to go up. So, um mm-hmm. But anyways, so we have the MK Ultra experiments going on where they're using acid against people, where they're experimenting with all these different kinds of drugs, a lot of them being hallucinogenic drugs. So you document how this happens in your book, but how also this was being used not only in this kind of experimental scientific way, but that they were applying what they learned from that to be used against both musicians and activists and student groups. So um, what do you think would maybe be the best example of it being used against some of these activist groups? Well, I guess one of the best examples is when uh, Columbia SDS, the Columbia Students for Democratic Society, which at that time was the largest, you know, arguably the largest anti-war group in the country and most active anti-war group in the country was Students for Democratic Society. They had up to 100,000 members by 1969. And the one that took over the uh, campus buildings, um, if not first, at least the most visibly, you know, uh, first in, in the media was Columbia SDS. And Mark Rudd and and his group of uh, activists at Columbia vowed not to take acid because they thought it was anti-revolutionary. And so um, undercover agent named George Demerley and his group of the crazies inside the Yippies, um, it, it infiltrated um, Abby Hoffman's group, the, U- the Yippies, the Youth International Party, and, um, and dosed, you know, kind of spiked the punch at, at a you know, Columbia SDS party and uh, got them tripping involuntarily. And so that's just one of many examples of the way that, you know, that activists were dosed, but that was a big one for sure. Yeah. And in this kind of same milieu of people that's going on during the time of the 60s counterculture, you know, we also have people like Timothy Leary, the acid guru and Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and all of this. So could you tell us just a little bit about both Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey and just how this 
this proliferation of acid and all these kind of acid gurus or whatever the best term would be for them in the counterculture serve to really take people away from more productive anti-war activities or political activities and kind of divert them into, uh, you know, uh, tuning in, turning off and dropping out. Yeah. Tuning in, turning on, dropping out. Leary's famous quote, so Leary was a uh, psychology professor at Harvard, and at that time, this was around 1960 or 61, uh, there was a group called the Human Ecology Fund that was giving loads of money to about 44 or 45 different colleges and universities around the country. They were also doing uh, funding experiments for um, jails and hospitals, and so Timothy Leary was the recipient of a, a lot of that money to uh, experiment with, with psychedelic mushrooms and, and then LSD on students at Harvard. And this, was, this happened, as I say, at, at you know, about 40-some other colleges. And uh, in, in those experiments, and some of them were ghastly, actually, experiments, they kept pushing acid on uh, Ted Kaczynski, and uh, he felt tortured by all the acid and turned into the Unabomber eventually. But um, with uh, Leary, he's doing these experiments and for several years, and then finally Harvard just got so much bad press from it that they they kicked Leary and uh, his cohorts Richard Alpert and Ralph Metzner out of the school. But Leary uh, admitted that by 1963 he was uh, knowingly working for the CIA by that year onwards. And so here comes Leary's kicked out of Harvard, but gets a lot of press, and here comes billionaires, um, uh, you know, William Mellon Hitchcock and Peggy Mellon Hitchcock, owners of Mellon Bank and Gough Oil. And, you know, they're from the families that own these different companies that were some of the biggest companies in the world. Their families were also involved in U.S. In, in intelligence. And um, they come in and they fund uh, Leary and Metzner and Alpert to, you know, with a new group called the International uh, Federation for Internal Freedom. You know, it's a ridiculous name, but uh, they had all of a sudden had uh, headquarters in New York, headquarters in California, headquarters in different other parts of the country, and even headquarters in Mexico, you know, out of nowhere because of this incredible wealth. So they give uh, Timothy Leary this mansion for, for pennies. He, you know, Leary can rent out this mansion for pennies in upstate New York, um, about an hour north of uh, New York City. And in that mansion, they lure tons of New York jazz musicians and writers and influential, you know, political writers and poets all up to this uh, mansion for constant parties. And housed inside this mansion are also, and you know, likely without the knowledge, of course, with most of the people there, are um, a load of MK Ultra agents. And um, yeah, besides Leary saying he was a knowing agent, but didn't tell anyone else for decades, um, there was other other people there that worked for U.S. intelligence, you know, under Project MKUltra. And so they experimented on all these guinea pigs, but they basically experimented in order to um, hurt their minds and manipulate them. And, you know, so that's one way they did this. And one way they, they kind of influenced the influencers, you know, to because people are more suggestible when they're they're high on acid. And then after they come down, they're still uh, a little bit, you know, emotionally less in control and more suggestible then too. 
And so, um, in now that was on the East Coast. On the West Coast, you mentioned Ken Kesey. So Kesey went through the. Um, so basically, while I meant to add that while Leary was doing these uh, experiments on students, um, a British agent named Michael Hollingshead came in and and uh, influenced him to try uh, acid and gave him a, a super dose, so a mega dose. And um, his brain was left not quite the same, according to his colleagues, but they basically could control him thereafter. So he was a knowing agent, but he also was more controllable because his brain was messed up a bit by super, super hits of acid that left him dosing, you know, uh, tripping for three days. Now, on the West Coast, um, they, they were also, as I said, funding these experiments in hospitals. And uh, this came out with about the Human Ecology Fund as a front for MQ, for the CIA's MKUltra that came out in Anthropology Today, the, the top anthropology magazine. And I show that in my film, of course, and talk about it in my book. But so on the West Coast, you had Stanford Hospital uh, getting funds from MKUltra through the Human Ecology Fund. And Ken Kesey is in graduate school for writing there and um, in Stanford. And he's in the he goes to the hospital to get like he gets paid basically all the students you know under these experiments get paid to, to try acid and so he gets paid to try acid and next thing you know uh they give him a job there at the hospital and during, you know with his job he gets keys to everything and they supposedly just allow him to keep stealing lsd from the hospital to run uh to throw constant parties uh at his home in stanford you know around stanford university and getting all, gets all these uh, other graduate school writers and graduate school people and Stanford people over, and even people from different other schools in that area, including University of California, Berkeley, over to join his parties and try acid for the first time. So that's some of the way they did things. Because now UC Berkeley was one of the top activist uh, universities in the country. And um, they were working, they were uh, fighting for free speech and to talk about anti-war issues and other left-wing issues. And uh, here's loads of them being diverted into the acid, you know, into taking acid and, and tripping and parting and hurting their minds a bit and being more suggestible. And so then while, while Kesey's there, he also, um, some people come into his life straight out of the military and uh, influence him to take a bus trip. That he, he needed to be in New York for a... Um, a kind of the world's fair to promote his, his next book because he had written a book by then one flew over the cuckoo's nest now i would argue that we just don't know if he actually wrote that or if um you know and or some think to ci think tank folks helped him with that because that's the way they usually do things they had novelists who never even wrote their own novels like j richard kennedy who was an undercover agent, and that was you know like known that was written about in the uh, top award-winning books on Martin Luther King, that he infiltrated the uh, Martin Luther King's movement, J. Richard Kennedy, as a top spy, and somebody gave me the uh, CIA documents on J. Richard Kennedy that even mentioned his name directly, and so he uh, wormed his way in as a manager of Harry Belafonte too, and before help Harry Belafonte you know fired him, but because um, Harry Belafonte was one of the main financial funders of Martin Luther King and his movement. But um, so here he is, um, you know, with this group of people, undercover agents surrounding him who called themselves the Merry Pranksters. And they convinced him to paint a bus psychedelic 
Um, and, you know, and uh, Kesey convinced uh, a guy from Jack Kerouac's crowd um, to to join him, you know, who was, uh, I forget his name all of a sudden, uh, but Neil Cassidy to join the, the trip and so give it more like promotion and glorification. And meanwhile, they leave California to go across to New York for the World's Fair and promote his book, but they take a circuitous route. They don't go directly over to the World's Fair. They go all through the Civil Rights South. And in the Civil Rights South, it was Freedom Summertime. And uh, so they go through. Meanwhile, the the, um, the activists from UC Berkeley uh, left for the Freedom Summer, you know, Freedom Summer campaign to uh, register blacks to vote, to help with uh, the anti-lynching laws and and you know, Martin Luther King's civil rights you know movement. And uh, that was the the summer. This was in 1964 or five, I believe. But it was the summer when uh, some activists, uh, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney were were all found dead being part of that movement in that freedom summer. And so they go right through that town. Um, and they actually, so the bus of student activists leaving for that left the exact same day as Ken Kesey's bus. And that's no coincidence. And so um, that's going to be in the extras, I think of my next film, but nonetheless, um, that's what they were doing. They were just trying to promote acid and other drugs all over the, you know, to activists down there. They get to New York. They try to promote acid and other drugs there. They go to Harlem right after the Harlem riots. You know, we call them rebellions for uh, for Black liberation. Promotes drugs there. Then they come back to uh, the West Coast and hold these, um, you know, huge acid tests that get bigger and bigger and become the Trips Festival, where they start with, you know, a few dozen people. Then they go to a few hundred people, and then there are a few thousand people. In the Trips Festival, and at the Trips Festival were some un, you know top MK Ultra Ultra agents like John Gittinger, the top psychologist involved in the CIA's MK Ultra, and others. And he said he had two scientists from the CIA with him at the Trips Festival and at several other um, acid tests. So these were obviously CIA MK Ultra kind of uh, promoted and orchestrated events, and that's you know, and they were trying to get the anti-war movement diverted into hurting their minds and, and away from their best activism. But I, I didn't have one good word to say 
Time of the counterculture was such a crazy time. I mean, you also have the Grateful Dead at this same time. And then you also have groups like uh, the big acid manufacturers, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, who you talk a little bit about in your book, who are also all running in the same milieu. So you have this weird confluence of 
musicians, musicians, intelligence agencies and their, you know, agents in the field. And as well as, you know, some of the biggest, you know, producers and traffickers of, of LSD, which you do a great job of, of working out. So very. And so, so, yeah, just to comment on, on what you just said. Yeah, the Grateful Dead got their start with Ken Kesey and the Pranksters Acid Test. They were the band for that those parties. They first called themselves the Warlocks and then they changed their name to the Grateful Dead. And so and part you know so they were part of all that for sure and the brotherhood of eternal love was just the the name change for ifif the uh international uh federation uh what was it called the international federation for eternal freedom which was you know ken leary tim leary's group so tim leary's group just changed its name to the brotherhood of eternal love but it was still the same group funded by the same you know u.s intelligence connected billionaires you know super wealthy uh, oligarchs and all yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things that I find the most interesting in your book, and we've already, you know, done some talking about the Grateful Dead and some other musicians, but is you laying out exactly, you know, all these different musicians who have managers or someone who suddenly appears in their life and has some sort of either personal or familial connection to intelligence agencies who also tend to be the one who get these musicians hooked on drugs or, or introducing women into their lifestyle and who are kind of diverting them away from any kind of, you know, activist type inclinations that they might have into, you know, um, drugs and, 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 and hedonism or, or whatever um, one might want to call it. And so I just want to know, when do you think that began to start? I mean, probably the earliest example, if I remember correctly, in your book is Paul Robeson and Elvis Presley. Yeah. So um, I, I've got, of course, um, Paul Robeson Jr., when he was an adult, when this happened, uh, talking about how his father was dosed in in um, by some U.S. American expatriates that, you know, were probably, he thinks were working for U.S. intelligence, dosed with a super psychedelic or a lot, just a lot of LSD in, in his drink. So Robeson, that happened to Robeson 61. And they actually, they actually went, when Paul Robeson Jr. came over to check on his dad, um, they dosed him too. Um, and he luckily didn't get as much of, he just took a little sip of whatever he was drinking and um, started feeling it. And and then so they they really hurt Paul Robeson's mind with tons of dose, lots of dosing and then electroconvulsive shock treatment. Um, then uh, you had, you know, of course, you had Elvis Presley, who had an FBI file on him. And in comes a manager for him, Colonel Tom Parker, who uh, people can say he just worked for the, you know, reserves, Army Reserves or whatever it was. But um, they often use, you know, these reserves for special forces. So they were, they were serious. And I think Colonel Tom Parker got um, Elvis Presley when he was just like about 21 or 22 years old, hooked on speed and downers and got him giving speed and downers to other musicians. And so and then they sent him over to the war, um, you know, the war effort. But they really sent him to Germany, which was loads of ghastly MKUltra experiments were going on in Germany at that time. And so, um, you know, he was basically controlled thereafter. Um, so with, with drugs and his career was controlled by Tom Parker and it was very sad. Um, you know, John Lennon said, uh, 
you know, that's when Elvis really died is when they sent him you know, over to the war in Germany in about 58, 1958, you know, that was, he was, after that was just the living death for, for Elvis. But so then you go into these other musicians that they started trying to manipulate and um, they tried to manipulate many musicians for sure. But in 1965, you got Robert Lashbrook going over to London and Robert Lashbrook was assistant director of MK Ultra, CIA MK Ultra program. And so he brings loads of LSD, you know, of acid agents and money over to, to uh, London. And according to A.E. Hotchner, who was the um, editor for Ernest Hemingway and close friend of Ernest Hemingway, Hotchner wrote in his history of that era of, with uh, the Rolling Stones and everyone that Lashbrook basically was told, saying, get the you know acid in as many musicians' hands as possible. And so only a month or two uh, later, John Lennon gets dosed by his uh, dentist, by actually George Harrison's dentist, John Lennon as wife Cynthia and George Harrison and his uh, girlfriend Patty Boyd were invited over to you know Harrison's dentist house and for dinner and they had dinner and then afterwards they they put uh, acid in their coffee you know spiked their their coffee again without them knowing and Lennon was furious George Harrison never even heard of LSD at that time and um, some months maybe six to ten months later you got um, this uh David Crosby of the birds at that time. And then Crosby, Sills and Nash um, has a big party with some people that are very suspect. And in, in, um, you know, in the United States around uh, LA and when Lennon and the Beatles are visiting that area, they, they go to this party and the, these musicians, a bunch of American you know, musicians associated with Crosby or different executives and actors convince Lennon to trip a second time, even though he was pissed off about it the first time. And that's what manipulated, you know, Lennon and Harrison to start, you know, getting into acid and psychedelics and inadvertently promoting it, even though they didn't know what, what was happening to them. And Lennon later, you know, just to, by 1967 or 80, he says he thought he was losing his mind on acid and he got away from it for at least a year or two, according to an interview he did with Rolling Stone magazine. But um, then, of course, Yoko Ono gets into his life and convinces him to get back to to uh, acid, and other other music executives do the same. And and one of these music executives is very uh, suspect. Um, but I get into that in my next film, and um, and they convince him to get back into acid. John Lennon to get back into acid, and then John Lennon. Uh, I mean, Yoko Ono then introduces John Lennon to heroin. Um, and according to uh, journalists, you know, London journalist who was friends with him. And so this is what was going on with him. And so Jimi Hendrix is another good example where, well, first, before I go into that, I'll just say that within London, with those spies pushing acid on musicians, Mick Jagger got his first hit of acid from what the Daily Mail said was an MI5 agent who was also working for the FBI named David Schneiderman. So... And that was in 1967. Uh, you know, Mick Jagger was a real holdout to, and to not try acid for a while. But um, so then you got Jimi Hendrix, uh, who who got big first in Britain and not in the United States because of all the racism in the United States. But in England, when he, he got big, he didn't know how to handle all the constant tour dates, you know, and shows he was being offered. And in come, into his life comes a guy named Mike Jeffrey. Mike Jeffrey said he was former MI6, which is... British CIA 
And uh, but all you know, all the best evidence shows that he was still working for MI6, but undercover to really control Jimi Hendrix. And Jimi Hendrix, um, upon Martha King's assassination, Jimi Hendrix started getting much more radical and started saying, "You got to support your Black Panthers." And he dedicated his last album to the Black Panthers. And um, and he was, you know, Mike Jeffrey uh, really manipulated him he, when when um, Jimi Hendrix finally, you know, he dosed Jimi Hendrix when he tried to do anti-war benefits and hurt his his best uh, performances. And when Jimi Hendrix finally got away from uh, Mike Jeffrey within t- 48 hours, he was dead. And my and two people uh, said that Mike Jeffrey admitted to them that he hadn't had you know Jimi Hendrix killed. Now, who can have someone killed within 48 hours of them leaving him and have so much cover up, so much government cover up around it? So, and that's what happened with that. And I show all the details, of course, in my book. And so then you got similar paths, not exactly similar, but very, but somewhat similar paths of that um, that happened to Tupac Shakur and Kurt Cobain. And I'll talk about them in a few minutes too.
Speaking of, uh, with Kurt Cobain, I just recently went to a concert not too long ago um, of this musician named Evan Dando, who used to be the lead singer of this group called the Lemonheads. And I uh, was looking into him um, prior to the show and I saw all these pictures of Courtney Love and Evan Dando together. So um, definitely thought that that was interesting. But I went to this concert and this guy is um, probably, you know, in his, you know, early to mid 50s or something. And he was obviously very intoxicated on on stage and did not play the best show ever. Um, I still enjoyed being there and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyways, it was just kind of a reminder of some of the stuff that I had read in that book. So maybe that that is possibly what made me decide to try and contact you subconsciously now now that I think about it. But uh, uh, I know that he's had, you know, alcohol and problems with crack cocaine and stuff in different parts of his life. So now I'm beginning to wonder if maybe Courtney Love may have been the one to introduce him to some of that stuff. But Anyways, um, yeah, so I guess as a, as a segue, we can talk about um, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love because I think each time that I've read it, the section on Courtney Love is a section that really stuck out to me because she truly has such a, um, a, a crazy story and it really goes to show because, I mean, you talk a lot about the stuff that's going on in the counterculture in your book my audience is definitely familiar with Dave McGowan and the book, you know, scenes inside the Canyon and uh, weird scenes inside the Canyon, you know, and, but this stuff continued to go on and it very well may still be continuing to go on. But anyways, yeah. So Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Just cause you mentioned Dave McGowan. I was emailing back and forth with him before he died and, uh, just comparing notes on publishers and stuff and talking. We, we talked a little bit about some of our content of our book too, of our books that were similar, you know, about talking was, we both focus on MK ultra a lot. Um, but he uh, did a great job. So that's why I included him in a subsection of my book and my film uh, discussing Laurel Canyon, the area where David Crosby lived, who I mentioned is his full name is David Van Cortland Crosby. Cause he comes from the, Van Cortland family, which are some of the wealthiest families in the country, you know, the Van Cortland's own thousands of acres in New York City. And uh, there's Van Cortland Park, which is thousands of acres. There's a Van Cortland Expressway in New York City named after the family. Um, and so he also comes from the Rensselaer family of, you know, my Rensselaer Engineering School and all. Nonetheless, um, so Dave, you know, focused on MK Ultra in Los Angeles. I focused um, a little bit on that because of his focus for sure, but I focused more on MK Ultra in San Francisco and MK Ultra in New York City, uh, you know, when I first started the book. And um, so what happens, so, so Courtney Love is is born to a woman named uh, Linda Carroll, who comes, who was an adopted daughter of the very wealthy Reese family. Reese family owned uranium mines they owned huge stock in Balsh and Lom. they were extremely uh, wealthy and the father was an alcoholic he, the, Linda Carroll said in her memoir her book about herself and um, she said that her father sexually abused her now she also said that her daughter um, you know Courtney Love 
was sexually abused, she believes, possibly at her daycare as early as maybe two or three years old, believe it or not. And um, so here is that situation now. You got Hank Harrison was Courtney Love's biological father. Uh, they, Hank Harrison and Linda Carroll became estranged. And uh, the Reese family ended up uh, suing to get full custody for Linda Carroll to get full custody of Courtney Love. They, Hank Harrison told me in a lot, in several interviews that they paid off his lawyer, so he he had to lose custody completely of of Courtney Love. But he came to find that when he um, you know he he when he finally got in touch with her again when she was stuck in a juvenile delinquent facility, that um and asking for him to get her her out, she was about thirteen years old. She said all of the therapists that Linda Carroll had sent her to from thirteen or fourteen years onwards had raped her and given her psychohypnotic drugs. And she talked about these, you know, these kind of exotic drugs, two and all and second all and things like that. And these were all drugs used in the MKUltra program for hypnosis and, um, you know, kind of controlling uh, subjects. And so then she, you know, so Hank Harrison get, Harrison gets his daughter out of the juvenile delinquent center but he comes to find that she's um, already started, you know, quickly turned to drugs and became uh, eventually became a heroin addict, you know, within a year or two and started leaving dirty needles all over the, his floors. And he had to, his, his uh, new wife had to said she's got to leave if she keeps doing this and she won't stop doing this. And so she's uh, then he finds that she's prostituting herself um, on the streets and uh, ends up before she's even 17 years old. She's. Yeah, she's about 15 years old and she's prostituting for the Japanese mafia and they even take her to Japan to, to prostitute to for like what Courtney says is just uh, sex shows, um, you know, as if it's not prostitution. But um, Hank Harrison says it was full prostitution. Nonetheless, uh, another biographer for Courtney Love says that she was she admitted to her boyfriend she was prostituting herself in the streets of Taiwan to get back to him as quickly as possible. So, um, and then, so when she's 17, she just turned 17 years old. She, she visited Hank Harrison when he had to go to Ireland for research for a book he was writing. Now he had started as the manager for the Grateful Dead for six months when, uh, where Courtney Love first grew up. And, um, and then he, you know, he leaves the Grateful Dead and goes out to, you know, he's writing books. He, and he actually had, you know, in one of his books though, he talked about the Grateful Dead, you know, dealing drugs and dealing all kinds of drugs. But nonetheless, he goes out to Ireland and Courtney Love visits him there. And this is in the uh, 1980s, about the late 80s or so, because I believe Courtney was born 64. Um, and or so, yeah, it might have been, uh, yeah, 64. So I guess it was maybe 60, you know, 1990 or 91 even, whatever it was. She might have been born earlier in that 63. Nonetheless, um, so he's out there, she visits him and, um, he, she, he says that, uh, somebody befriended him named Stephen O'Leary and saying he was just a fan of the Grateful Dead and liked his books. And, uh, O'Leary starts, uh, then, uh, hanging out with, with Courtney Love as, you know, Hank's daughter and starts having sex with her. And this guy's in his you know, mid to late twenties and Courtney of course is like just turned 17 and O'Leary then takes Courtney to England and, and turns out Courtney Love has a thousand hits of acid on her. This came out in a number of mainstream books that she took this thousand hits of acid and O'Leary helped her 
her pass it out around uh, Liverpool, England, where all these up and coming bands were, such as you know the um, uh, Adam Ant and uh, Julian Cope and you know bands like that, and so um, she's doing that and she's disrupting bands like the Pogues who were starting then, and um, and so. She then duplicates, so that's duplicating what Robert Lashbrook did in London, you know, 30, you know, 20 years before. And then she goes and does the same, duplicates these activities in Portland, in Los Angeles, in various different cities. And in Los Angeles, she, she ends up like marrying the top punk rocker in Los Angeles. And the top punk rocker says he thought he was marrying a left wing, you know, rebel. And it turns out she was like a right wing Phyllis Diller. And he, she said she had sex with uh, generals in Alaska when she was prostituting, and they they convinced her that wars were good for us, and so that you know her husband didn't know what he was talking about when he was anti-war, and so she he ended up divorcing her, and then she goes to of course Seattle and uh, goes and clings on you know finds uh, Kurt Cobain who was dealing with a massive stomach problem, and uh, tried heroin just a few times, and according to his diaries to try to quell the stomach problem he couldn't solve, which was making him throw up and making him all the time and have massive, you know, pain. And so she, you know, meanwhile, never mind just rising up the charts at the time. She starts dating him, gets, uh, uh gets pregnant with his baby immediately. Um, according to his friends, gets him hooked on heroin and using daily for the first time in his life. And uh, basically, you know, manipulates him to promote heroin inadvertently. And so that matches what was happening with Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon. And uh, eventually he, he gets away from heroin and he says he found a cure to a stomach problem a year before his death. And then a month before his death, um, he was divorcing Courtney Love. Um, you know, as I got his lawyer saying, you know, in the uh, film, in my film, and he Basically, and so, but Courtney Love, he wants to see his daughter he had with her, Francis Bean. So, so he's in Rome, Italy, do touring, and all his people touring with him said he wasn't even smoking weed or drinking. He wasn't doing anything, any drugs whatsoever. And he goes and you know she um, gives him this huge dose of rohypnol, which is known as Rufies. It's legal in London where she was at the time uh, as a sleep medicine. So she, it's her, it's her prescription. She doses his drink with that. He goes into a coma and um, comes out of it, doesn't remember anything like happens with roofies. And then, you know, a month after that, he, he's, he's dead and they say it's a suicide. But all the best evidence, according to the former head of the American Pathological Association, Forensics you know, Pathology Association, uh, Cyril Weck says it was, uh, uh, you know, a staged suicide. It was a, a murder made to look like a suicide with with uh, Kurt Cobain and uh, a guy named Eldon Hoke says that Courtney Love paid him, you know, offered, offered him, <clears throat> you know, some fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to kill Kurt Cobain. And he was just on tour at the time. So he didn't accept it, but he knows who did accept it. And he said, you know, he told another journalist, Alan Wrench. And uh, meanwhile, he's got cooperating, you know, people about this story, the, the, person that owned the music store that he worked at when Courtney Love offered it to him said the same. Um, I wrote an article about the FBI denies that they have jurisdiction over this, according to, you know, recent articles about the fact that they had an FBI following Kurt Cobain. But even in their own files, the information that, that 
Courtney Love traveled from Seattle to Los Angeles, where Alden Hope worked, to uh, offer this money to for murder, and that's crossing state lines to uh, plan a murder, and that's you know obviously within their jurisdiction according to their own laws. And I wrote about that in Covert Action Quarterly, document all the laws and everything else around that. So that and loads more evidence, you know, presents the the aspect that that U.S. intelligence was involved with Courtney in this because Stephen O'Leary on his deathbed uh, told Hank Harrison, who told me and also sent me a copy of his original version of his book, that he had a letter from Stephen O'Leary admitting that he was working for U.S. intelligence um, and the details of that when he was working in Ireland, you know, as kind of, uh, and then bringing Courtney, you know, Courtney Love to England to do what she did. And so that's just some of the massive evidence that that this was a CIA operation against Cobain. You, with Courtney Love being used in that operation, whether she knew it or not, whether she's dissociative or not, you know, she was operating on behalf of U.S. intelligence. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. And you also talk about in your book just some of the other interesting characters who were, you know, possibly involved with this whole scene. Like one of them who I thought was very interesting was, you know, Alan Wrench um, and, and whatnot. But yeah, just a very, very... Uh, it's weird to see this continuity between, you know, all the way from Elvis, all the way up to, you know, people like Kurt Cobain and Tupac Shakur. And maybe we should get into Tupac Shakur next because I have a friend who does this podcast called Program to Chill. It's like a play on words from the Dave McGowan book, Program to Kill. And yeah. I've uh, done a couple episodes with him where the first one we talked about some of the weird stuff that's going on in the SoundCloud rap scene. And then the second episode we did was talking mainly about, you know, um, informants and stuff and rap, you know, just across time. But I ended up using, that's when I first uh, doing the research for those episodes is when I first ended up reading for the first time, drugs as weapons against us. And, um, you know, anything I said in that podcast, um, with the exclusion of a few things, I ended up finding a lot of stuff about Tupac Shakur in, you know, this book and your book, The FBI War Against Tupac Shakur. And I thought it was so interesting how, I mean, he was essentially revolutionary royalty. And uh, so if you want to, you know, just tell us a little bit about, you know, Tupac's early life and kind of the, you know, um, all the just, you know, being surrounded by these, you know, radical Black Panthers and, uh, you know, just kind of lead us through what would happen as a as a result of his activism. Yeah, so Tupac uh, Shakur was a was born uh, to a Fanny Shakur, who at the time was a Harlem Black Panther leader who was heralded around the country for her incredible defense of herself in court. And given credit by even the jurors of that of this huge case against the New York Black Panther Twenty One, as uh, getting them all off in court because of her brilliance, and so she was asked to speak at you know colleges around the country, including you know Yale, Harvard, and all these other places that were very very prestigious. So uh, here is she right coming you know um, month or, month or so after court, she gets she gets you know acquitted in court with the New York Panther Twenty One. Tupac is born and she named her, you know, Tupac, um, you know, she called her Tupac, her black prince of the revolution. And so uh, Tupac was, you know, she kind of raised Tupac to punish him by making him read the New York Times from cover to cover. So she made him this brilliant intellectual because he was so well read and so such a brilliant guy, so scholarly at an early age and was already well versed in his whole now Tupac's godfather was uh, Geronimo Pratt, who was the Los Angeles Black Panther leader. And um, his godmother was Asada Shakur, who was a close friend of uh, Faney's, who was one of the Bronx Black Panthers, who was very influential in the Bronx Black Panthers. And uh, Tupac's, um, and so Faney's original husband actually was uh, Lumumba Shakur, who founded the Harlem Black Panthers. And Lumumba's uh, brother was Zaid Shakur, who founded the Bronx Black Panthers. And so, and the Shakurs were intimate with, um, were very close with Malcolm X too. So yes, he did come from revolutionary royalty, you could call it. Um, of course, they didn't live like royalty because they were, um, you know, the U.S. intelligence made them destitute 
and attack them for the rest of their lives, sadly enough. Um, but so Tupac was, um, you know, his stepfather, actually, because uh, Faini and Lumumba got divorced when, when they were in prison. Um, his stepfather was uh, Matulu Shakur, who was uh, Lumumba's adopted brother who lived with him for a while. And, and Matulu had founded um, acupuncture for um, for drug detox and, and was a pioneer in, in America that never been used that way before. And really was invited to China to discuss it. It was invited, you know, uh, around the world actually to talk about his his uh, pioneering project with Lincoln Detox using acupuncture for addictions, which um, where I actually got trained in the 2000s. Um, while sadly Matulu was in jail, but it's, it's great that Matulu is free now. And um, but that's only after many decades and much struggle. But while um, Matulu was in jail for a frame up really because um, he wasn't directly involved in any kind of bank heist that they, they said he was involved in. Um, he was mentoring Tupac from jail, but the FBI was watching Tupac to see if Matulu was uh, going to visit him while he was in hiding before he was, uh, you know, caught and sent to jail. And uh, so, but Tupac, by the time he, he uh, was in his teen, teen years, he became elected the youngest ever chairman of the new African Panthers, which was, active in eight to 10 cities around the country and was attempting to replicate the Black Panthers. So yeah, he was already a national Black Panther leader even before he became a rapper. And then he got asked to tour with Digital Underground. They thought that maybe he can use his, um, you know, his uh, music to get the message out better than, than just being head of the New African Panthers. And so, uh, but he also had this, this kind of underground movement where, uh, which he called the Thug Life Movement, which was devised with Matulu to pretend to be a gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them. And this was confirmed to me by uh, Watani Tayahimba, who was his first manager. And you can see in this new film, you know, this new documentary series on FX called uh, Dear Mama. But um, Watani talks about some of this and um, about the thug life movement and all. And so, um, Basically, Tupac was um, trying to get uh, the Bloods and Crips gang peace leaders, I mean, the gang leaders to call peace between each other and shake hands and agree to be more ethical about the way they do things and to try to convert these gangs into activism, you know, left-wing activism. And he was having success first in getting it to happen throughout Los Angeles and then through, and he had a lot of help, of course. There was, you know, people like Harry Belafonte were stepping in and trying to help uh, black people his Black Panther extended family was really working on this, but um, the young, you know, gang leaders just loved Tupac. So when he got involved, they really were inspired by that. Um, and so it spread throughout the country actually. Um, and so uh, part of that spread though, also got these gangs to stop dealing drugs. And that was a huge um, red flag for us intelligence and the billionaires that launder all this drug money and the billion and the uh, CIA who traffic so many drugs. And so it was really affecting the wallets, the money of the CIA, the oligarchs who traffic, who are involved in the drug trafficking and, you know, and, and the banks that launder the money and the other corporations that launder this money. And that clearly put uh, Tupac from being in the FBI counterintelligence program crosshairs, the counterintelligence program that targeted the Black Panthers and the, and the Students for Democratic Society in the 60s, 
to now um, target people like Tupac because the former FBI COINTELPRO, FBI COINTELPRO agent said, and was he swearing and said in his book in the 1990s, that he knows that his fellow agents told him, you know, the FBI continued COINTELPRO at least until the 90s, but just using different names for it. And COINTELPRO worked closely with MKUltra, and uh, MKUltra's name had changed to MC, you know, MK Search. And um, it's just, you know, best evidence is that all these programs continued under different names. And so here, here was um, Tupac threatening the, uh, the drug, you know, scheme and uh, they had to take him out. And it's very sad because he was doing great things at that time, doing, you know, doing great films, you know, writing great music. He was going to leave Death Row Records. Death Row Records had manipulated him into being part of them, but they were really an undercover front group for the CIA, all the best evidence shows, um, to do the exact opposite of what Tupac was doing. But to, they, they attempted to kill Tupac probably about a half dozen times before they were successful. And I document that in my book and films, um, you know, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA World, Musicians and Activists is my film based on the book. And you can see all that there. But um, so sadly enough, uh, intelligence agents, you know, police agents in Death Row Records uh, helped U.S. intelligence set up Tupac's murder and um, and then and accomplished it finally in 1996 in Las Vegas and, and then set up uh, Biggie Small's murder as collateral damage to make it look like it's part of an East Coast, West Coast rap war when it was really about the assassination of Tupac. Okay, well, that was a very good and concise rundown, so I appreciate it. Now, we're approaching the end of our time together, so I want to ask you just a little bit, because not only have you written this great book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, which I recommend that everybody go buy a copy of, read. Um, it also would be a good book to give to a copy of to a friend or something, because I think that with a lot of these, I mean, it's almost impossible that you could give this to someone and there's not going to be a musician who they're a fan of and would want to learn more about. So um, it would be a good way to, you know, kind of uh, pill some people on exactly what's going on, but with these intelligence agencies and the trafficking of drugs, but you know, so you've written this book, but you've also got a bunch of experience in counseling people with addiction issues. And so I just would be curious to know as what do you think is the solution as far as the intelligence agencies bringing in these drugs and whatnot? Because um, something that I wonder about sometimes is because I, uh, Definitely no longer consider myself, but as a very young guy, I kind of considered myself as a bit of a libertarian. Let everything be entirely legal, and um, I can definitely see some problems with that. But there's also probably bigger problems with, you know, the, you know, profit prison system and the needless incarceration of nonviolent people. And it doesn't really, you know, help to re rehabilitate a lot of people. And especially when, you know, there's the laws for thee, but not for me kind of thing, because, you know, as you lay out so well in this book and in a lot of your other work and some of your documentary films and stuff, I mean, it's the government who's bringing in the drugs. So I don't know. That was kind of a ramble, but I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I 
pretty much agree with you. I don't know where exactly I feel about legalization, but uh, I can definitely appreciate the uh, argument that maybe legalization will would um, take the money, the profit motive out of it enough to do something positive. And I don't believe in the you know for profit the for-profit prisons and, and all the corruption around that for sure. And, but I, uh, I guess um, I just don't have uh, a real strong opinion about the political side of that, except to say that I hope, all I hope to do is to educate people as best possible for them to say, Hey, I, I don't want to get involved in all these drugs that were, likely brought in by US intelligence and likely promoted by US intelligence as like what you know you might call the new soma from Alice Huxley's book Brave New World um they just want people diverted and you know going into a dream state all day instead of doing anything to oppose the the most powerful people who who run society and control our lives so yeah it's that's i guess the best place i can uh, go with that right now yeah but you know in my film um you know in the beginning of my book i talk about like okay i you know people want to do drugs that's that's their business but you know just understand that the powers that be are going to roll over us if we're just you know diverted and don't have our best you know capabilities mental capabilities to oppose them yeah absolutely and it's interesting that you bring up Aldous Huxley, you know, because he wrote Brave New World and stuff, but then he later went on to write, you know, The Doors of Perception and to kind of, uh, you know, promote that same kind of getting into um, psychedelics and stuff. But the Huxley family is such a weird little clan with ties to eugenics and stuff. I'm not exactly sure to, you know. Well, I think think Aldous Huxley, though, was going blind and he was easily manipulated sadly enough. And I think he was um, kind of mixed about where he stood on it all. I, I think Julian Huxley, I think who was maybe his, I can't remember if it was his uncle or his brother, but he was bad news. And he was you know, definitely into eugenics and bad stuff. And um, I don't know, I don't know the rest of the family, but uh, I think Alice is, is a, just a debatable story because he also wrote some uh, books such as Brave New World Revisited. That was very good activist book. And and other books that, that I, one called Ends and Means, which is really hard to find, but I found it um, in another country, actually. Um, that was a great activist book. But it's, you know, so um, nonetheless, the key is the the ideas, you know, remain with us. And um, we're, you know, that's a tool that he exposed, a tool that they're going to use. They're going to use drugs to divert us, to not see what, you know, what's going on while they just control us. What's up? Yo, this see no rollers try to jack a nigga cause a nigga with a perm rolling on a coupe with gold. Yo, man, what's up? This ride motherfucker jacked me up rolling around bumping his music too loud, you know what I'm saying? Yo, this feel to the G, oh motherfucking cop just jacked me cause I was drinking beer in Mill Valley. What's up, man? Alright, man, fuck him. I don't give a fuck. They done put me to my limit, I'm all lit. I might blow up any minute, need it again. And now I'm in the back of the pack, wagging while this cop bragging about the nigga he's at. I see no justice. All I see is niggas dying fast. Sound of a gun blast, then watch the hurts pass. Just another day in the light, G. Gotta step light because cops try to snipe the cats. They don't wanna stop from a brother, man. But then I have an accident to pick up another man. I went to the bank to cast my check. I get more respect from a motherfucking Democrat. The Grammys and American media shows, they rip us like hoes. They got 